They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Cricket Conversations is brought to you by Blue Bottle Coffee. I've got to tell you about an epiphany I had a couple of weeks <laughs> ago, guys. How was it? Well, it was I pretty like good. Did you take ayahuasca? <laughs> Someone left a package of Blue Bottle Coffee in the kitchen here at the studio. Then what happened? At first I figured, eh, coffee's coffee. But then I poured myself a cup and holy shit, it completely changed the way I look at coffee. Then it dawned on me. I've been drinking subpar coffee my entire life, but no more. That's because Blue Bottle has an insane dedication to coffee. I don't know if we needed to go that far. Uh, they take freshness very seriously. It's true. Blue Bottle works directly with farmers all over the world to source the most delicious and sustainable coffee they can find. The beans are then roasted within 48 hours of your order and shipped right to your door. I would mm. not have taken them any other way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they arrive at your home at peak freshness, no sitting on a dusty shelf for weeks. And Blue Bottle has something for everyone's palate, from the lighter, fruit-forward profiles to the deep, chocolatey espressos. <laughs> Look. Look. I've had plenty of coffee in my <laughs> Look day. Look what I have drank. You have had plenty of coffee. And Blue Bottle is, without question, the freshest, most delicious coffee I've ever tasted. Do you want to know the truth, guys? What, what do I do? There's a Blue Bottle coffee right by my house. I just stop on the way to work. You know what's great about Can it? Can I say that? Yeah, the, yeah. the Blue Bottle. I'm going to be on. I want to be honest with our with our listeners. The Blue here. Bottle near our office is not only great coffee, it's the perfect walk length. Also, don't sleep on the breakfast sandwich there either. Mm. Pretty delicious. Okay. I, don't and think I know you can get that coffee. through the mail. I like the New You Orleans. can't get that through the mail. You they should. can't send it, but it is. It's a very good breakfast sandwich. Sign up for a free trial of fresh, delicious Blue Bottle Coffee right now at bluebottlecoffee.com slash convos. What have you got to lose? It's a free trial. That's bluebottlecoffee.com slash convos. Convos. That's our code for this, for like this show. Convos. C-O-N-V-O-S. Convos. Bluebottlecoffee.com slash convos. Welcome to the very first episode of Crooked Conversations. Crooked Conversations. I'm John Favreau, and I'm here, as always, with my pals, Buds. John Lovett and Tommy Vitor. Hey, why did he say our names? I don't know. I just wanted to say it. We're we're switching it up a little bit. Anyway, guys, uh, we launched Crooked Conversations because uh, the pace of the news doesn't always let us take a deep dive into the political issues, trends, and questions that shape the way we see the world. It's true. Is that was that your understanding of why we launched this, Tommy? Yeah, this is like, really your brainchild. Yeah, this is Tommy Vitor's to brainchild. I pitched it to you guys. I mean, I think that tr- Donald Trump tweets something, and the whole news cycle changes. But meanwhile, we're not talking about really important stuff like the media, yeah, voter suppression. Tommy, do you feel money uh, Do you feel powerful when you had an idea and then made made it manifest in the world? <laughs> Kinda, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we so we launched Cricket Conversations and you're going to hear me, Love It, Eventually. Tommy, Pfeiffer, our great contributor network. Um, they're going to bring Crooked's no BS conversational style to topics in politics, media, culture, sports, technology, basically anything that falls outside of the daily news grind. Yeah. So and they're going to be interesting, fun conversations. They're going to be the best. So in our inaugural episode, I sat down with Snapchat's Peter Hamby. And uh, Jessica Yellen, who's a reporter on CNN for two a long time. Two CNN alums. Two CNN alums, yeah. Hamby was at CNN before uh, before Snapchat. And we talked Al- about... Alumni. 
We talked about the media. We did a deep dive. One would be an alumnus. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and we uh, and we did a deep dive into the media's coverage of the 2016 election, which, as we know, was perfect. People spend six hours a day on mobile screens. If you're under 30, that way outpaces television, right? Yeah. But I know people in Washington who just got rid of their Blackberries like two years <laughs> <It's> ago. <so> true. <laughs> right? One of the things that makes the left uncomfortable is the consolidation of power. Right. And it's the consolidation of these media organizations that I think has also helped change their tenor. Peter and Jessica are both uh, outstanding guests for this episode. They're two really excellent reporters uh, who are also, you know, they don't get defensive about media coverage. Well, They're very critical of it themselves. I wanted to ask you, normally when you criticize the media, you get a, a defensive subtweet uh, from an angry journalist. Did that Was that the thrust of the conversation? Not these two. These two are reflective. Um, they have really good ideas and uh, they have really exciting things to say. So without further ado, we, uh, we hope you'll enjoy the very first episode of Crooked Conversations. Welcome to Crooked Conversations. I'm John Favreau and today I'm joined by two of my good friends and favorite journalists, the head of news at Snapchat, Peter Hamby, as well as Jessica Yellen of USC's Annenberg Center on Communication. Uh, both of you are also alums of CNN. Peter, you covered political campaigns. Jessica, you covered the White House. And I could not think of two better, smarter people to talk about how the media covered the 2016 election, which was perfectly. <laughs> they nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> um, I wanted to have this conversation after I read a very extensive study um, of more than one million media stories by a Harvard professor named uh, Yokai Benkler that got a lot of attention last month called Partisanship, Propaganda, and Disinformation, Online Media in the 2016 U.S. Presidential Election. So basically what the study finds is that coverage of both candidates, Clinton and Trump, was overwhelmingly negative, but largely followed Trump's agenda. So with Clinton, the primary coverage was scandal, emails, and the foundation specifically. With Trump, the coverage focused on issues, uh, immigration, and terrorism. But what really helped Trump was the asymmetry of the media environment. So liberals and Democratic voters would read and share stories primarily from New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, which were critical of both Clinton and Trump. But conservative and Republican voters would read and share stories from Breitbart and to a lesser extent Fox, which were critical of Clinton but highly favorable to Trump. So first question to you guys, in your experience, is there a media bias towards negativity? And how does that play out? Are you kidding? <laughs> um, I am not. The way the way we describe it inside the business was conflict. We like conflict uh, because conflict makes for better drama. Better drama makes for a better story. So, you know, you chose to use a judgmental word like negativity, but we would just view it as, you know, a better way to tell the same news story. And it's not, that's not a new thing at all. Right. Like people, to, to Jessica's point, uh, yeah, conflict, personality, drama. But usually it's uh, someone said something bad about the other candidate and we want to cover it or someone's poll numbers are down and we're going to cover it. It's easier to tell those stories than it is to, uh, and cheaper, quite frankly, to pay for someone to go to Austin, Texas and do a story about the sanctuary city ban and what that means or whatever, right? Um, but it's not new at all. And it's gotten worse. Uh, Harvard did another study, the Shorenstein Center at Harvard, yeah. which covers the media and politics. Um, 
And it showed that since 2004, like in each successive presidential campaign, the coverage, the tone of the coverage gets more and more and more negative. And this was the most negative. Um, so that's what I'm looking at is the change, right? Because obviously mm-hmm. media coverage, negative, it bleeds, it leads, right? Like this has been forever. But in that Shorenstein study, they showed that um, coverage of candidates has been more negative than positive since 1984. And it's gotten worse, right? Over time, as you just pointed out, Peter. But then people would say, okay, well, maybe campaigns themselves have gotten more negative, but coverage of issues has gotten more negative too. So immigration, negative, Islam, negative, healthcare policy, negative. So what do you think, what has propelled that change over time? I think there's two factors. One is uh, what Peter referred to, which is the cost, so resources. And the other is competition for eyeballs and attention. So on the competition, if you're trying to stand out and get noticed in a noisy environment, you tell the story that seems the most dramatic and seems to be the sort of the most interesting to listen to. And it's a lot like what politicians say, I want to stay positive, but voters pay attention to the negative ads. Right. Uh, and so it's like a default posture that it's much easier to tell a compelling story that's about two people fighting than it is to get into the weeds of an interesting policy issue that requires a slower tell, like a slower burn. Also, it's a way cheaper. So for example... Um, If you want to just go out and read some of Trump's tweets, that costs you absolutely nothing. (laughs) Nothing. And you can have a reporter standing there doing it all day long. So you get 10 live shots out of that same reporter. Whereas if you want them to go out and research what's in this new tax plan and how will it affect, let's pick a $50,000 homeowner that owns, makes $50,000 a year. That's going to take a lot of research to actually figure that out. Yeah. And I think we can go further into this. This might be a little bit of a detour, but like it can't be overstated how much reporters and editors and bureau chiefs and decision makers in the political news media live on Twitter all day long, <laughs> literally hours, hours and hours a day. And the tone of that conversation uh, influences what makes it into the newspapers and what makes it on television. Just think about our own behavior on Twitter sometimes, right? Like yeah. we go back and forth with folks. Everyone's trying to one-up each other. And that those tendencies bleed into the media. The and that's hardest, just not, when you say go into the newspaper, that means that, that's affecting local coverage at this point, right? Oh, 100%. Because I think you get a lot of people who say, oh, you pay too much attention to Twitter, but Twitter's this very small universe of mm-hmm. people, not a lot, most of the country's not on Twitter, which is absolutely correct. But it's still but hugely it's, powerful. It's hugely, the, the, the influence is outsized compared to how many people use it. Well, to just tease that out, I think you get a handful of decision makers at important news organizations in Washington and New York, and maybe you guys in L.A. <laughs> <laughs> we are now important decision makers. <laughs> Check that box. Um, but they are, they're following what's on Twitter. Then you see that end up on one of the cable news channels or on the front page of the New York Times or Post, and then that becomes the assignment editor to the rest of the press because the rest of the press across the country is looking to a few cable news channels and those major newspapers to drive their and coverage. those and quite frankly a lot of those major newspapers and TV shows are looking to like a handful of reporters like right. like that are can, can really like drive a rundown on a television show with like a single tweet or a single scoop. Um, but back to your original question, yeah. I think that today, and I'm trying to like inhabit the mind of like a day to day political reporter right now. Um, but the har- one of the hardest stories to write in 2017 is a positive story about anyone. It could be a positive profile. It could be a, 
you know, here are the ways this person's healthcare plan is good. How crazy is that? I know, it's, I know, but <laughs> this goes back to what I was saying. Like, the track of negative coverage getting worse since 2004 also tracks the explosion of the internet, right, as a as both a disruptor of, of news but also as a means to give everyone in the world a voice. And, like, again, if you're a reporter and you write a positive profile about someone, you're going to get flamed by somebody on Twitter, right? And, like, it spooks us. Mm-hmm. It spooks people in the media. And I think that's long been in the DNA, like, uh, of TV news, print, whatever. But it's just more that conversation is out there now in public. And I think it makes people feel like, okay, I can't say anything positive about a and campaign well, or a and person. And why does it spook you as a reporter? Is it because you're worried about an accusation of ideological partisan bias? You don't want to be accused of kissing someone's ass. Like, what if you go out and you say this person, you know, worked hard to enact an amazing policy? Uh, who are you buttering up? What's that about? You know, it's seen as source priming. Yeah. Um, in Washington. Well, but you, in Washington. But you wouldn't yeah. have to, I mean, you wouldn't have to say someone's policy, you know, Hillary Clinton comes out with a healthcare policy. You don't have to say it's amazing. You could say, there could be a story that Hillary Clinton announced her healthcare policy today. She wants to add a public option, right? And here are the pluses of that. Here's, here's, the, here's the positive parts of that. And here's the negative parts. Here's the things you have to watch for. And here's why she might not be telling the whole truth. And here's what Trump did. And Trump, Trump didn't have a, a policy proposal today because he just, uh, you know, accused Ted Cruz's dad of killing JFK. So and your sorry. show producer would say, I just went to sleep. That was ambient. <laughs> He's like, I want, the uh. <laughs> I want the Ted Cruz's dad thing, right? <laughs> I think I'm thinking, trying to think back to like an experience at CNN that I, that I had, um, like when the Tea Party first came about in early 2009, right, uh-huh. during the um, uh, foreclosure crisis. Who was the guy on CNBC who, like, stood on the floor yeah. and yelled oh, at yeah. the Tea Party? What was that guy's name? I can't remember. Well, was it Jim Cramer? No. No, 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 no it wasn't no. Jim Cramer. No. It was— uh, Rick Santelli. Yeah, Rick Santelli. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Asking a bunch of day traders. It's like yelling yeah. at President Obama over the TV, right? Yeah, right. So in 2009, the Tea Party was coming about. I think, you know, we at CNN were perceived as reacting too slow— and not catching the Tea Party phenomenon, right? And like, uh, you know, I remember some boss person running over to me to like write a story for the CNN political ticker. Remember that, Jessica? Mm -hmm. You know, because like, oh, we hadn't covered it yet. That is to say, the Washington media is very scared of pissing off the right. They are not super scared of pissing off the left. I don't don't know if you agree with me on that. 100%. But but there is a... um, ecosystem of interest groups of uh, you know people that work in politics on the in the the conservative uh, side of the spectrum and then the media right the conservative media who are have become very adept at attacking the quote-unquote mainstream media for quote-unquote liberal bias there's not an analog to that on the left you have like media matters you have some websites you have people on twitter but it's just not baked into the dna that uh, they have to worry about the left because the perception is that the media already is left-leaning. So they're scared of the right. I, I think that's such an important point. And I would underscore it by saying that when in my career, I saw it when I was um, working in the news in 2004 after Bush was reelected. There was an exit poll showing that um, Bush was elected on the strength of moral values, moral issues. And that mm-hmm. was a top concern for voters. And I remember in the days after that, there was all this hand-wringing and internal discussions at these news organizations. 
what are these moral issues? What do those people care about? What is this phenomenon as a us-them kind of thing? And then this scramble to reflect those values internally. Now, it later turned out that that was a faulty exit poll and discredited (laughs) But it informed sort of political choices, story choices going forward. And that was the first time I saw this kind of panic to make sure we didn't seem liberal, which I I never saw in the reverse. And um, I think that, you know, it's become a, a misunderstanding of the mainstream media that it is naturally liberal. If you look at the debates in the last presidential election— I would challenge you to find a series of questions about wages on the economy in the early debates. It was always about debt and deficit. Um, Well, I mean, there's also, I mean, people say the media is liberal or conservative and it's like a catch-all for every single issue. Right. But you can tell that like maybe some reporters tend to be more liberal on cultural, social issues. But you're right. When it comes to the economy— It's a corporatist position. It is like there is somehow a position in Washington that debts and deficits are bad and cutting the deficit is good and we've all got to fix entitlements together and populism, economic populism is bad because that's socialism. Look, there are legitimate views to have— but it's funny that that becomes the consensus. <laughs> I don't yeah. think it's an accident. <laughs> and I, I think— Well, what, no, speak, talk more about that. Why don't you think it's an accident? Well, I think that they want to occupy a centrist position on economic issues because these are um, established institutions owned by major American corporations. Yeah. I don't know if I agree with you that. You don't? No, it's certainly baked in. Maybe it's subconscious in some way. Maybe that flows down through executives to— network presidents to bureau chiefs and out to the journalists. But like as a day-to-day reporter, I never felt No, not that. as a reporter. Yeah. But I mean as a as as the instructions you get, editorial guidance you get from the top. Yeah. Is very like debt and deficits what matters. We're yeah. really driving debt and deficit. So I I agree like with what you're saying broadly though. Like I think that um, and just to demonstrate that I'm still a day-to-day hacky political <laughs> reporter, I'm going to quote a tweet. Um, <laughs> but Dave Weigel had a great tweet last week, and it said, and he showed like two like Huffington Post polls, right? And it was like, in Washington, Bernie Sanders is like a wild-eyed communist. Out in the country, he's the most popular politician right. that there is. And like, not to, you know, say that Bernie is the savior of, uh, you know, has the best economic agenda or anything like that. But there is a substantial disconnect between how a lot of people in this country talk about the economy, what their economic experiences are, uh, not just with wages, but with uh, student loans, right? right? Like with like just simple things like buying a car. And, and look, I think with journalists, a lot of journalists, uh, what is normative to them? They went to nice schools and, and you know, whether they grew up in, you know, Alabama or Ohio or Tennessee or New York, like they now live in New York and Washington. And um, I don't, I, I think this is not a new claim, but uh, because of that are not completely in touch with, you know, what your day-to-day vote, like voters experiencing. Cricket Conversations is brought to you by Stamps.com. With the holidays almost here, who has time to go to the post office? Not us. Not us. It'll be crowded with people sending holiday cards and gifts. So what do we do? We use Stamps.com instead. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your fingertips. Buy and print official perhaps, perhaps you're waiting in line behind someone who's mailing a letter to someone they loved and lost, you know? 
or like uh, like uh, they were like putting a, a mail they're putting a file in a in an envelope for uh, for George Papadopoulos. <laughs> no, you got to bake that, that into you got to bake that into a cake like the Beagley Boys. <laughs> <laughs> Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your fingertips. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer. Then the mail carrier picks it up. Stamps.com makes it easy. They'll send you a digital scale which automatically calculates exact postage. They'll even help you decide the best class of mail every time, print postage any day, anytime, because unlike the post office, Stamps.com is always open. And right now, you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale without long-term commitments. Avoid the craziness of the holidays at the post office. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Crooked Convo. That's Stamps.com. Enter Crooked Convo. Crooked Convo. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. So fast forward to today, because you brought up the uh, post-2004 faulty exit poll, right? And everyone flipped out. Now we got to be more in touch with more about moral values. So after Trump wins, it seemed to me that the only self-reflection that the media did was around the question, how did we miss this? Right. How did we not know this was coming? So we are out of touch with all these Trump voters in America, not not because we're out of touch with what they believe, their angst, their economic situation, their culture, but because we didn't we didn't predict this right. So they will send people out into the country now and to do these stories. But when they do, the stories are about now talk about your political views. And it's still not let me talk about how you're living or what your job situation is or how you can't afford to pay the bills or healthcare opioids. It it seems to be all political. So even when it seems like they do want to pay to have reporting out in the country, it is all around horse race, polls, politics. Is that just because that's more interesting to people or they think it's more interesting to people? They think it's more interesting to people. Again, I can't say enough because that's what people around them think is interesting. That's what they think is interesting. That's what we think is interesting. Like we're doing a political podcast right now. We love politics. But, <laughs> um, we're not we're not in Ohio right now <laughs> talking to <laughs> No. Um, but yeah, I, I don't have a, a good answer to that question, but I think it's because, uh, you know, again, a lot of decision makers of the networks are looking around to what the other newsrooms are covering and talking about. And like, it takes, it's hard to be brave in like, you know, mainstream Washington media. Like you're, you know, I've been in, I've been in offices and you have Jessica where, you know, an executive producer will have on CNN and then they're looking to see what MSNBC has on and Fox has on. And like, it's the same at Fox and MSNBC and they will change the subject of what they're covering based on what someone else is covering. It's like, oh my God, I'm missing something. I need, we need to be covering that. Let's blow up the rundown. Like that, that happens. So like, no one, no one like trusts their instincts on this stuff a lot. And not to like plug what I'm doing at Snapchat, but like one thing that we've found with the show that I have, Good Luck America, is like <laughs> people just want stories that are interesting and relevant to their lives, especially like young people who are not watching TV news at all. Right. right? And I think there's a marketplace for that. It's 100%. just not being served. I would amplify that by saying I also think you, in order to tell the kind of story you're talking about, John, you have to be brave in trusting your reporter. And you have to say, I think that you are you have a nose and an instinct and I'm going to send you to Ohio and I want you to come back in three days with a killer story or in two days. Hmm. And that is so rare now in the system 
it, because so much is driven from editorial decisions made in a conference room by people reading the New York Times and the Washington Post in New York, and they tell you what to report. So, so a, talk more about that because yeah. you, you've both talked about this, and I find this fascinating, and I think a lot of people don't have a window into how these decisions are made. So say you're a reporter who wants to come into work, you work at CNN, and you say, like, I want to cover the issues, <laughs> right? And I want to cover, and I want to be tough on the candidates, both candidates, both sides, but I want to do it on substance, and I want to then talk to voters and figure out how. They, and so you go to your editors or your news directors or whoever it may be, and you say, you know, I want to cover this story. How do the decisions get made every day in the newsroom? I, th- I think the bigger barrier to entry for a journalist who has an idea is not that uh, it's it's not that they like don't want to cover policy necessarily. I think everyone's trying to be counterintuitive. Like I think reporters want to be counterintuitive, but they get this like pressure not to be from the bosses. Does that make sense? Like so here, here's a good example. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> again, this is more politics than policy, but in January of 2014, I did a bunch of reporting in Iowa about just like and way before the primaries started, like, hey, how's, you know, what do you guys think about Hillary? Just talk to, like, dozens and dozens of people, activists, elected officials. Everyone said what eventually came true. Eh, you know, kind of, like, out of touch generation, generationally. I want to see more voices. She's not populist enough for me. I want someone to talk about, you know, wages and universal health care. And so I wrote this story that was, like, Hillary has an Iowa problem, and there's a lane for someone on the left. Brought that back to CNN. Um, they were actually good about it. Like, they put me on TV to talk about it, whatever. But there were lots of people also that I worked with that were like, nah, this isn't true. Right? There's a received wisdom, in other words, that's the barrier to entry for both policy and politics stories that, as Jessica said, a certain thing, a certain narrative has to be true. And if you, like, try to deviate from that, you sort of get punished for it. Yes. You get punished for it. Either your piece doesn't get traction or um, you get slammed by whoever you're being critical of and you get no backup. So it's it's very, it's very a big risk. And you get punished by, it sounds like, your peer group on Twitter, right? Right. So <laughs> I mean, other jur- <laughs> it sounds silly, but no, it's true. I've seen it. You know, you there are times when you want to tweet something and it's different than mm-hmm. the prevailing narrative and you're like, should I hit tweet on this? Because well, I know I'm going to either look like... And you could be, John, you could naive. be dead right. And you will not get any retweets or likes on that because <laughs> it's not what, what the pack is thinking, right? right. And that is a It seems like the worst, form of the worst sin is not to be savvy enough, not right. to have Everyone figured. has to be, yes. Everyone yeah. in Washington has to be smarter than the other person, has, has some kind of inside information. This is a crazy story. This is a crazy story. A reporter that I know... One time had an on-the-record quote, uh, like, with some kind of political wisdom attached to it, and chose to put it on background because that made that person seem savvier oh, and more inside. Because like, I have anonymous sources. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I know, I know. And that, one, I won't betray my great source to right. other people, and two— I have this special kind of wisdom that no one else can have access to. Well, also, I I noticed there are reporters who will make things anonymous or unnamed sources so that they could elevate the status of the source. So it seems like you're talking to a higher level. I mean, there's all sorts of the games time, that get played. The, the Times doesn't do this, but the Post does these days. They will, they will like, break a story and be like, we talked to 17 White House sources. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you don't need to, like, one-up everybody. Like, lots of White House— lots, We know like, that it's a leaky sources. White House. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, do you think that— do you think the, the media is making some of the same mistakes now— yes. 
that they made during the campaign? Do you think they've learned any lessons? So uh, there's two parts there. One, I do think they're making some of the same mistakes. And specifically, it is sticking to a narrative narrowly and not educating us about what's happening in our world. So, for example— we are narrowly obsessed on, you know, the dramas of the Trump White House, literally like office intrigue, you know, palace intrigue there, the president's tweeting, and, you know, North Korea. But at the same time, we do know that these agencies are being gutted, that they're reversing regulations left and right, and there's almost no headline reporting, front page reporting, or top of the hour reporting on the networks about what is happening. And I I want to, you know— Rex Tillerson hasn't staffed up the State Department. What are the consequences of this? It's going to matter. How about the EPA? How about HHS? Let's hear about what's actually happening. There are enormous numbers of whistleblowers who are complaining. Um, Chase them. What do they have to say? We're not hearing these stories. And they get covered in some of the pages of the Washington Post, and the Post has been astonishingly good. But the story is overwhelmingly Russia, 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 and Trump's insanity, and North Korea, and we're missing the broader picture of how Americans' everyday lives are being impacted by this administration. And I think to answer that question and, and still try to pin down what you said before about why, why policy doesn't cover it, it's important to do a taxonomy of like what kind of stories are out there because there are – there is really great reporting right now about um, what's happening at the EPA, opioids, with HUD. Like people are writing those stories. Right. right? They are there. They're being written. They're, they're, they're being written by everyone from the Washington Post New York Times to ProPublica, like whatever – CBS News. It's not but getting like, oxygen. They're not getting oxygen, and that's the important point. There's this, like, line that gets, like, snipped between what a lot of reporters are doing and then what people choose to talk about on Twitter and also, like, what gets on cable Television. news. Because this—exactly. I think a lot of us, when we are talking about the media, the media, the media, we're, like, conjuring, like, a waterfall of tweets— and the cable news right, machine noise right. and the network news, right? And when you do turn on the TV, you don't see those stories. But it doesn't mean that there aren't There's great reporting so many reporters yeah. doing that. Well, I agree. I noticed this during the last healthcare debate over Graham Cassidy is there were a lot of activists on Twitter saying, no one is covering Graham Cassidy. No one is covering what's about to happen. And all these reporters on Twitter started getting really angry. And they're like, this is my piece. I wrote this. Right. And what the activists really meant is, no, no one on television was covering it, and right. it wasn't being talked about on Twitter, right. which is true. But there seems to be this gap where it's a bunch of journalists, uh, particularly print journalists, who are trying to write these stories. But then, hundred percent, I don't watch. It's funny, I don't watch cable anymore since we've been doing crooked media here. And then every once in a while, when uh, Donald Trump is on television, we know he's giving a press conference. I'm like, well, we should watch this, and you watch like two minutes of punditry. And it doesn't matter if it's CNN or MSNBC or Fox or, or the network news. It is such garbage because it is, it's all Russia <laughs> or it's a hurricane. It's Russia or a hurricane or, North Korea. or Donald Trump or North Korea. And there is almost nothing else. Right. The, the only thing I hate about crooked media is that when you call cable news such garbage that the people listening can't see the look on your face. It's so, <laughs> it's so incredible. <laughs> it's just, it is but amazing because I used is, to watch it all the time. And I didn't – I mean yeah, I was yeah. angry with it. But I was like, yeah, this is what we're all watching. So this is, this is something else that's important to unpack. Um, everyone should think about their own career paths in their daily lives. Like people listening, you could be an attorney, you could be a doctor, you could be a teacher, and you could be a mechanic, whatever. There's a path to success and a like perceived and real 
in all everyone's careers. For journalists in Washington, a lot of the path to success is to steer into television. So for a lot of print reporters right. or young reporters uh, writing for anywhere from the AP to BuzzFeed to the National Review, whatever, getting booked on TV gives you credibility in Washington and gets you invited to the parties and, get, mm. you know, might get you a job at one of the networks, in which case they pay a better salary than you would get paid at a newspaper or a digital organization. Right. Um, so all of that is to say, it, it like it's sort of like that's what creates like a lot of the feedback loop and a lot of the story selection, quite frankly, that if I can impress my peers with like a scoop about policy or like the latest drip drab out of the White House around Jared Kushner or Steve Bannon, that will get me booked on MSNBC. And then like more people know me and more sources talk to me. And then I get to go to this party and I get to sit at a cool table at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Like that is actually a thing inside the like swamp of Washington that maybe it exists everywhere in journalism, but like it is, it, it seems to me very specific to DC. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I do want to separate out as I talked about cable news is yeah. garbage. Look, there are, there are journalists on cable and on network news who are reporting very important stories. And then sometimes they go to the field and someone's doing an amazing story right. there. Yeah. But when you get to the panel, <laughs> no, no, I mean, listen, you like, know, that's when I, that's when it really starts going downhill. It's just, you look at people like Dana Bash and Evan Perez and some of these people who are breaking oh, stories man, they're and such they're animals. so good. Yeah. Right. And you know, they're sometimes I think, thank God for them. Right. right? Um, it's the larger environment that becomes a problem. And I, you know, I do think we're, we're sitting in a place where you guys have formed this business. It's like you've seen a niche and you're filling it. This also calls for disruption. Like what television news is providing is, you know, this kind of horse race punditry and then a lot of numbers. Like the polls are up, the polls are down, the polls are spinning all around. Who like it's not really addressing what people want. Well, this want. is something that that yes, and this is something that I think like someone like Steve Bannon smartly tapped into, which is just that like people don't just think the media is like liberal and elite, and in a lot of ways, sure it is, but like they also just think it's dumb and yes. irrelevant. Yes, right, oh, huge, and <laughs> that creates a lane for places like this, right? Like hopefully the stuff I'm doing, but then also lots of other news organizations. Or fake news organizations or like just crappy like clickbaity organizations. But there is a lane out there for information um, because a lot of the sort of mainstream press isn't super relevant. Well, I thought in this study what was really interesting is, you know, a lot of us and a lot of people in traditional media have assumed that the whole debate around fake news and Facebook posts getting spread everywhere and all that kind of stuff, like that's, that's what might have tipped the election. In this study, it showed that by far, what was shared among conservative voters and Republican voters the most were Breitbart stories. And Breitbart stories usually have a kernel of truth in them and some kind of fact that then gets blown way, way out of proportion, exaggerated, crazy headline, insulting, whatever. Like, But conservative voters, on at least on the right side of the spectrum, they're still sharing that stuff more. And that has a greater impact on how people are forming their views of both candidates than even some of these like fake news posts on Facebook. Yes. And th I mean, this study is incredible. Like everyone should read this and it's long, but everyone should, should go deep on it. Um, the, the study did find that fake news is like in some ways a canard, right? Like something that, that a lot of frankly, mainstream organizations like pointed to as a, as a scapegoat for their own sins, but also that, you know, uh, these academics at Harvard said that 
of all the sort of literal, they define fake news as something that's literally made up, the sort of like Macedonian teenager thing that is put on social media just to, you know, give them clicks and revenue, right? There's not even a kernel of truth to it. But that stuff didn't even make it into the top 50. Most shared stories. Most shared stories. The stuff that did was like things that had a kernel of truth to them. Um, It was like, I think the the example was uh, Governor Jerry Brown signs bill that uh, lets all illegal immigrants vote. And the actual truth was he signed a voter ID law that may, you know, it was right. like very, very far from that. But right. it became like the most shared Breitbart story, you know, or yes. one of the most shared Breitbart yes. stories in the whole election. Yes. And the stories about the Clinton Foundation at one point, Huge. like in I mean, August, I think August 10th of 2015, the New York Times wrote a big story about, um, what was it, the uranium mm-hmm. deal? Uh <laughs> See, we don't we don't know exactly what the details were, but it was super it was shady. Bad. Definitely bad, right? <laughs> I know. Shame on <laughs> no, me. No, I, I, I know feel the same way. But they actually they, somewhere, somewhere all the Clinton. They did this incredible. The spokespeople are screaming right now. No, no, it this was is, wrong. I know. I know right? <laughs> Sorry, Philippe. Um, no, no, it was it was when Judicial Watch uh, basically was able to obtain a bunch of Clinton Foundation emails showing that Clinton Foundation donors were trying to get special access to State Department, like. Nothing actually came of it, but there was a flood of emails now available to people on the internet, uh, including reporters. Um, This study actually does a map and shows that the most shared content around that email story was one, Judicial Watch, two, uh, Breitbart, and three, the New York Times on Facebook, right? Right. And so, like, again, that's the first touch for a lot of news consumers and voters around these stories is them seeing it there and they're like, oh, Breitbart is then telling them about this, linking back to a New York Times article story about it. Um, but this is this is what jumped out at me at the study. And this goes back to like the sort of Washington institutional media not really paying attention to what voters care about in terms of issues, but also like how they get information. Like I think that's a big problem that um, a lot of people in Washington think that they're at the center of the universe when it comes to information consumption. Like the White House briefing room is the, is the <laughs> beginning and end. Right. They are the gatekeepers of news. Like, whereas their place in the world is actually shrinking. So, like, these were among the top 30 uh, linked to news sites on Facebook during the campaign. You have New York Times, CNN, Breitbart, Huffington Post, The Hill are, like, the top five. Number seven, Politicus USA, which is a liberal site. 11, Conservative Tribune, 12, Gateway Pundit, Raw Story, U.S. Uncut, Political Insider, Daily News Bin, Western Journalism, Bipartisan Report, Addicting Info, Occupy Democrats, Truth Feed. This is like making up half this list of the top 50 news sites. So like There's major publications not on there. No, major (laughs) publications are not reaching as many people as those places. Now, go to any sort of, you know— bar or cocktail party in Washington and ask people where they get their no news. No one's talking about They're Gateway Pundit. They're reading the Pundit. Wall Street Journal. They're not reading Gateway Pundit. You know what's interesting about that study is the least influential news outlets were the center-right outlets. Mm-hmm. Wall Street Journal and I don't know, some of the other ones like that. But um, also, which also, they also said that their influence in 2012, like the Weekly Standard and the National Review, right. shrunk dramatically in 2016. Yeah. One, because that followed dear leader, like whatever, like Trump, like sort of became the embodiment of like conservative sentiment and those other news organizations that put up a principled sort of never Trump stand sort of lost their resonance among the base. But it that that crystallizes just how quickly uh, the media landscape is changing. Like in just two years, websites that were sort of influential 
erode. And and like that to me is something that I think Washington also needs to understand. Like even between 2012 and 2016, the amount of time spent on mobile screens in this country doubled. People spend six hours a day on mobile screens. If you're under 30, that way outpaces television, right? Yeah. But I know people in Washington who just got rid of their Blackberries like two years ago. <laughs> <Is that true>? <laughs> <laughs> right? This also goes to a larger trend, which is the anti-establishment sentiment um, on the far right, which on the right, I should say, which you've seen accelerate more quickly than on the left. But I predict it will follow on the left. And I wouldn't be surprised if the mainstream news organizations suffer as a result of that. You saw that Breitbart in part, like, sort of cut out Fox News's knees a little bit by attacking Fox during the early period of the campaign. And, you know, Fox has, fall, like, conservative viewers have l- less trust in Fox now than they did prior to the campaign. Um, and I think that you might start to see this. Now, liberals are increasingly tr- trusting of, say, the New York Times and CNN post-election. Uh, but it's a little counterintuitive, and I wouldn't be surprised if that we are, I mean, I, I, as, as a liberal, as a political person still, um, when there is a candidate, when there is another Democratic candidate, that candidate will be treated like Hillary Clinton right. was treated. Right. And no, I think she might. we can argue whether she was a particularly weak candidate or not, and that will go on forever, and she faced additional challenges, sexism, everything else. But— um, this trend of the traditional media outlets that get shared among people on the left, New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, uh, covering both Democrats and Republicans negatively mm-hmm. is going to continue. I don't think it was yeah. unique to Hillary and, Clinton. And the study also said that, that the right side of the ecosystem was much more insular. So people on the right were more likely to either watch Fox News or read Breitbart on social media and not really go outside of that lane. Whereas on the left and the center left, yes, there were, you know, left sites, but there, then you they were also more interested in just sort of mainstream. Well, the right has outlets. done a much more effective job at creating the ecosystem in which their own material is shared internally and circulates and speeds up. And the left, they're is, all on the same page, and it it it's a bigger phenomenon. The one point I'd slightly differ on is it it can get overstated because I hear people say all the time, "What's." How are we ever—conservatives never listen to the new CNN or read the New York Times. How will we ever have a common discussion? That's overstated. There is, you know, there is some overlap. It's just less. Would you agree? I mean, you're still seeing conservatives listening to CNN, reading the New York Times. Yeah. Just not to the but same But I wonder extent. if it's the conservatives who are the Wall Street Journal, National Review, Weekly Standard, Never Trump crowd. Like, they're—sometimes on Twitter, it seems they are still having a debate with— the mainstream right. left and the mainstream media, but the Steve Bannons of the world—they've moved on. Steve Bannon doesn't right. give a care. fuck what's right. in the New York no, Times. And this is a, the, <laughs> the yeah, Post, no, unless he's totally. unless he's placing a story about Clinton this, Cash. This is a huge <laughs> element of the asymmetry media asymmetry conversation. Cricket Conversations is brought to you by Soothe. Soothe. Lots of things in life that can stress you out. Or make you tense. You know what? You know what stresses me like out? Like an indictment. I, I, you know what stressed me out? If Tommy told the story again about Hannah <laughs> suggesting soothes like it's the first time. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry, original guy. What, 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 where's your hamburger rant about this one? <laughs> Jerk. <laughs> this is why people tune into the ads, guys. This kind of this kind of uh, you know banter right it's here. So hot in here. You get to it. It's so, so hot, hot in here. It's really like one of the. It's like that Jesus. experiment from Ghostbusters to get us fighting. 
<laughs> hey, hey, I don't even know if this is on in the main part of the office. Turn the AC down. God, Turn the AC us. down. Soothe is an on-demand massage service that Mukta, delivers a hand-selected... Slack somebody, please. It's so hot. Tell them to put on blankets and shawls and get the AC blasting in here. We're going to fix it at the new office, but it's too hot. We're going to... Oh, Chris, cut all this. No, leave a little in. A little. He's just so loud. Soothe is an on-demand massage service that delivers a hand-selected license and experienced massage therapist to you in the comfort of your own home, hotel, or office in as little as an hour. We're not... We're not doing suits in the office, guys. I just, uh, you it's keep too saying small for that, that, but it's good. Well, not this office. Oh, oh have- I hope Lovett makes the joke about no suits in the office again because <laughs> it's super original. <laughs> Sooth shows up with everything. They bring the massage table, sheets, oil, and even music. So you can unwind no matter where you are. You choose the kind of massage you want from Swedish and sport to deep tissue and more. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> you can even opt for a couple's massage. Pull it together, guys. Set <laughs> so the length of your massage, and you can also pick the gender of your therapist. So some of the things we've had are uh, smooth, gl- smooth deployment, comfortable glide, and oils. <laughs> Therapists can earn over three and a half times what they'd make at the spa while we're maintaining incredible schedule flexibility. That means you can even book a massage for 10 p.m. on a Wednesday. This also brings the best therapists to the Soothe Network. You can book via the phone or Android, I'm sorry, you can book via the iPhone or Android app or on the web. Soothe is in 50 cities, including most major U.S. cities and London, Sydney, Melbourne, Toronto, and Vancouver. Book a massage as soon as today. Our listeners are getting a special offer that will get you $20 off your first massage when you use our code CROOKEDCONVO. Download Soothe, S-O-O-T-H-E, in the iOS App Store or Google Play Store, and be sure to use our code CROOKEDCONVO to get $20 off your first massage. That's money in your pocket. Soothe. Before somebody's, you know... Spock, rubs, Spock rubs quality your, rubs massage. Your haunch, rubs your haunches. Wow. Soothe is Spock quality that. massage. You say, say, that, say that part again. Soothe. <sighs> you should regret this whole ad. Soothe. It's been deeply upsetting to all of us. <laughs> Soothe. Spock quality massage anytime, anywhere, except our office. For now. Mom, I got the job in Manhattan. Do you have a warm enough winter coat? What about your car? I'm selling it with Kelly Blue Book Instant Cash Offer. How? I enter my license plate number, miles, condition, upload photos, and boom! An official cash offer from a local dealership. A cash offer instantly? Oh, did you call Aunt Stella? She's right there in Massachusetts. Mom, I literally just got the job. Not everything is as simple as selling your car with Kelly Blue Book Instant Cash Offer. Price it, fix it, trade it, sell it. KBB.com it. We think on uh, like in the center and center left media, they play by a certain uh, respect for rules, right? The rules yeah. of journalism, the sort of like fact checking and sourcing, right, etc. You know, uh, on, the, on the right side of the ecosystem, they're not playing by those rules. Right. And like, so, like, look, Breitbart actually does have reporters, right? Like, they have people covering events, breaking news, right? Whatever. Like, they might overwrite those stories and they might hype them up. Um, and some of it might be garbage, but like there are other websites like the ones I just rattled off to you where they have no accountability. Like they just don't care. And like the, the sort of establishment lane of the media needs to understand that, again, as you said, Bannon doesn't give a fuck about the rules, right? He just cares about moving the needle of public opinion. But he also is tapping into, you know, the Democrats say it's, you know, it, they get hysterical about that. But he's tapping into something real, which is this mistrust for establishment institutions. Mm -hmm. And that is true on the right and on the left. And so— But we're always going to have—I think the left is always going to have a tougher challenge with that. Because ideologically, 
the left is about trying to build up institutions of government. Like, we believe in a government that can work for people. Absolutely. That can be, and so it, people and people in the far left still, you know, they attack it. But I mean, this is basically what we dealt with in the Obama campaign, right? In 2008, Barack Obama runs against the establishment and runs against Washington and runs against the way things are done in Washington because that's the sentiment in the country. And it's a little bit about, it's a little bit like what Donald Trump did. <laughs> there's, there's shades of what Donald Trump did in 2016, but it is, it's anti-establishment. Barack Obama wins He's president. He's in government for eight years. And now he has to make government work. Mm -hmm. and, he, and he's part of the establishment. And so what he's open to for eight years is charges of hypocrisy that he ran against this Washington establishment that he's now part of. So liberals are always going to have this problem where even when we run against the establishment and run against Washington, once we're there— it's in our DNA to try to make it work because that's the purpose of liberalism. <laughs> I feel like I had this conversation with you during the campaign and you're like, nah, it's all going to be good. Probably. I've done some thinking. <laughs> so I totally agree. I think it's slightly different when it's the media because the distinction is um, one of the things that makes the left uncomfortable is the consolidation of power. Right. And it's the consolidation of these media organizations that I think has also helped change their tenor. Mm -hmm. And I, I do think that, you know, you're increasingly seeing women especially go first to social media for their news when news breaks. And so I think you might start to see a trend away from some of those older establishment media institutions. Yeah, Hillary, I, I forget it was when she did an interview with you guys here at Crooked or elsewhere, it's certainly in her book, she called for the sort of development of a kind of a left-wing ecosystem to, to sort of attack the establishment and protect themselves in the counter A vast left-wing conspiracy? Yeah, and I you just, would... again, I don't oh, think that's... Oh, we the, have Verit, guys. I just don't think that's in the, in the DNA of Verit, yes. yes. Verit, it already exists. Sorry, I'll our, just stop talking. Well, I'll just talk. <laughs> everyone, everyone, please provide your authentication, authentication code. Yeah. I'm real. I just don't, I don't think that's in the in the DNA of the left. And, I, and by that, I don't mean that um, the left is... Uh, far less gun shy guilty. about it yeah right it's, just, it's more that like I, I think again pew has studied this like people who are left of center are more inclined to seek out various information from uh, multiple sources. from multiple sources for instance if you you know made a comment on the show about uh flint like someone would then google like oh i want to hear more about that and like read about it in the wall street journal the washington post or, or like time magazine that doesn't correlate to the left on the uh, sorry to the right on the right people are more inclined to trust a single source if they read it somewhere they take it to the bank um, yeah and that's not Peter talking like this has been studied, studied. by academics I take that to the bank if you tell me <laughs> thank you yeah <laughs> I thought in the Shorenstein uh, Center study that you referenced um, Thomas Patterson who who was the author of the study said if everything and everyone is portrayed negatively there's a leveling effect that opens the door to charlatans the press historically has helped citizens recognize the difference between the earnest politician and the pretender today's news coverage blurs that distinction so i do think that this the the trend towards more negative coverage of uh both candidates and issues actually benefits the right more than it benefits the left even if you're giving equally negative coverage to both Democrats and Republicans. I have a so I have a slight shading of that study mm -hmm. that I wish they had done. Okay. You know, they say that there was equally negative coverage of Clinton and Trump in total. Mm -hmm. But I would be really interested to go and take the first four months of the campaign 
when we were first being introduced to Donald Trump in the context of a presidential contender. In the primaries? In the primaries. When he came down that elevator until September 15th or so, Mm -hmm. and see how they covered him. Because I remember very clearly that it was day after day after day of sort of joking, laughing coverage. It was. Kind of joyous uh, amusement that this silly goof was doing this funny thing. There's even a thing on online of Donald Trump says the darndest things. And it's, you know, music over Donald Trump calling Mexicans rapists and, you know, all the uh, wildly outrageous things he said. So my personal snapshot was the coverage of Trump was largely sort of neutral, shrugging and amused. And then it became invidiously negative at the very end. Well, like the nasty. Tom's Harvard study the one you just cited, also says that in the general election alone, coverage of Trump was much more negative. But in the full scale of the election total, coverage of Hillary was much was more negative than Trump because of what Jessica is talking about. He wasn't treated seriously. Um, he was on SNL. Well, the key, like, but the key the Fallon is, stuff. Yeah. From, well, a, that, yeah. from the perspective of a, someone who's been in political campaigns, Donald Trump despite all the negative coverage, I think the press covered him very negatively. But despite all that, he was able to get his message and across. And here's, I actually thought about this this morning. Um, the negative- She wasn't. Correct. But, but the negative coverage around Hillary was around emails and sort of this like veneer of corruption based on the Clinton Foundation, right? The negative coverage about Trump, yes, some of it was just like gaffes and some of it was the Access Hollywood tape. But a lot of it was his over-the-top flamboyant statement about Mexicans, as Jessica said, right? That still flows into which his is issue based, correct? So, like, he it was w- his message. Yes. It was his his what, what he got negative coverage for happened to yeah, be his, his message. message. So, there's right. a whole bunch of people who didn't like that. Everyone on the Democratic side, a lot of moderates, a lot of Republicans too. Um, it flows into trade. But his it flows base into heard immigration. That message. Her her base never heard what her positive message was. This is also negative coverage favors the new candidate. And coverage favors the new candidate. That's true, And too. so part of it is, oh, a shiny new toy. Let's talk about his things. What does he have on him? And oh, my gosh, she's the toy we've been—no, it's in the back of the bin for years. We're so bored. So he gets a lot more attention. Plus, unique to him, he's highly tactical. He doesn't have long-term strategy. He just tries to win this news cycle. And the media loves that because we want you to make our news cycle sing. Yeah, and it can't be— I don't know. I know this has been flogged to death, but the amount of, like, earned media really matters. This election was about earned media and social media, and it wasn't about paid media, right? Trump didn't spend For all the talk money of on, money in politics. <laughs> correct. It's true. These the, te- the television ads mattered very little. Very little, and Trump spent money on TV uh, for the last two months of the campaign. Trump spent 50% of his advertising budget on digital. Now, a lot of people might say that's well, that's crazy, but they made that commitment, whatever, they, because they understood that people were getting their information from their phones and from social media, and they weren't necessarily like paying attention to did, paid. Did Hillary media. spend a lot less? How? What was the comparison with her? I don't know the exact comparison, but I think, and you, we, you can ask Teddy Goff this, yeah. but might, maybe like eighty twenty TV digital. I'm not sure, but like it was a, it was a shocking disparity, and and the Trump campaign spending fifty percent of the budget on on digital was like completely groundbreaking. Um, so. Uh, you know, and the and the TV executives will say, "Well, Trump, Trump talked like he would call in. Like the other people weren't volunteering to call in. Look, like I have a lot of sympathy for the other guys working on these Republican campaigns. Like, okay, Bobby Jindal would love to be on this week, or Bobby Jindal would love to go on. You know, any like CNN, whatever. But like, 
you're just going to ask him about Donald Trump. Right. Like, right. you're not going to, like, ask him about, like, Bobby Jindal actually, like, wrote an entire healthcare plan. Like, you might not like it, John, but, right. like, Bobby Jindal actually is a thinker about healthcare policy. Like, did he get an airing of that during the campaign? No. No, of course he didn't. The um, the anecdote from Hillary's book that will stay with me as I think about future elections and media coverage is she starts, she's complaining about how she actually did have an economic message and it never broke through. And she talks about how her and Tim Kaine go on this bus tour. It was like a Rust Belt bus tour. And they're talking about ec- the economic message. And every day they're getting good local coverage about mm-hmm. this. And no one ever knows that they did this. Because while they were doing that, Donald Trump attacked Khan, Kazir yeah. Khan, and the, the father of a gold star, uh, gold, star fa- gold star family, father of a fallen soldier. And that fight dominated the news completely. And I think to myself, and I asked her this, I was like, well, how do you more effectively get the economic message out? And, you know, she didn't have a good answer, but whoever the Democrat is next time running against Donald Trump, I don't know how, do you think that that media environment changes at all? Because I can imagine the 2020 race where there's a whole bunch of Democrats running and they're all trying to get out their plans and policies and differentiate themselves from the other ones in the pack. And Donald Trump just picks a fight with one of them, says something fucking crazy, and that's all we're talking about. And that's all anyone knows. Well, look what's happening right, you know, in the country. There there are millions of people struggling to live in Puerto Rico right now. And all you see on the news, at least, is NFL tweeting. Right. NFL tweeting. And you'd think that a human disaster of that proportion, which would be fascinating TV, would dominate? No. So I think there's already been a shift. And I think— it's hard to tell. Like, I think, obviously, the political environment will be different. Like, I think, you know, Democrats will be much more activated. Um, you know, the issue set might be different. And the media might be, you know, tired of covering Trump's tweets. But <laughs> I know, right? This, that says it alone. Like, I don't, I don't think so. So, you know, and I don't want to get into diagnosing what the Democrats have to do, but it does make it seem like you would need it's so funny, like Hillary's Hillary's media tour and like around her book was just like so much better than like the campaign, right? <laughs> like she was a little, she was a little more like unshackled. Candid, like right. yeah. she was doing interviews with like uh, outlets that were reaching audiences that weren't just TV news. Like she was pretty thoughtful about it, but, and she was willing to kind of throw a punch and like, I don't know, I think Democrats do need somebody who's willing to, you know, throw a punch or like drop a tweet on Trump. I don't, I don't know, but I don't know if that's just in keeping with his brand and it would sort of come off as insincere yeah. if like it also Cory de- Booker's doing that. It depends on what the ma- matchup is. If you have somebody that you could have an anti, an un-Trump who's highly substantive and counters his ridiculousness with content and then it might play differently. Right. To answer your question, John, no, it's not going to change. Sorry, like right. I just had to like well, stew gonna- through that a little bit. <laughs> but like, so like, but to just, end on a hopeful note, yeah. what are the trends in media that both of you see that should give us some hope that possible that political coverage in the future will possibly be a bit more substantive, focused on issues, focused on what people care about out in the country. Anything you're seeing? So I, by virtue of working at Snapchat, I often, I don't know, I feel, I feel like we care about what our audience, you know, is attuned to and we're always listening to them and taking cues from what they want and what interests them. And... um 
like 75% of the viewers of my show on Snapchat are under 25. So that's the kind of world I live in. And I speak to college campuses. I was at Arizona State, the Cronkite School Mm -hmm. this week. And you ask them for a show of hands, how many of you watch cable news? Zero. (laughs) Like literally zero. They don't know a channel at all. They might not (laughs) own television. So like millennials are the largest generation in this country, right? They have to vote. Like they vote at a lower rate than other uh, elements of the population. But an increasing number of people in this country are not getting like uh, you know bad journalism fed to them every day now at the same time as we've been talking about a lot of people are like from like shady fake news websites but I do think a lot of the feedback I get is that substantive credible information is what people are craving right now and I, I don't know maybe again that's fed by anecdotes but like I hear that a lot I, you know, when I do speeches, I get the question I get the most is, I don't know who to trust. Who should I trust? Yeah. How do I, how do I know what to read? And um, before, people were asking it completely open ended, and now they'll start suggesting reporters. And what I would always say is, pick reporters that you think are trustworthy, that you have watched or read, and you think their reporting seems substantive. Follow them and follow Alex the people. Jones. <laughs> but you know, people are in grand- well, you know. <laughs> We got to work on our educational system in this country. But Civic literacy. Consider it, yeah. But I do think that there is um, – people are starting to recognize you should follow great reporters instead of the organizations they work for. That's important. And, um, and that the, the technology is allowing that to – reporters' work to be elevated more and more. And I am cheered by the fact that millennials are tur- turning to Peter and Snapchat and women are increasingly turning to Facebook first and other sources first before going to the traditional institutions. And I think that there's an awareness because of everything that's happened that we need to be a little more thoughtful. And the fact that people are checking their sources to some extent is great. All right. Well, we will end on that note now that we've fixed media. Was that hopeful? I, I don't like we're know. Like I was hopeful or something. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, we weren't going to... We could have gone. We could have gone a darker route. Much darker. <laughs> <laughs> um, Peter Hamby, Jessica Yellen, thank you so much for joining Cricket Conversations. Thank you. Fun. Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, next on Cricket Conversations, Cricket contributor Aaron Ryan takes on the corporatization of breast cancer, also known as pinkwashing. The problem is that we've been sold that the pink ribbon is the solution and it's like the pink ribbon has come to eclipse the women it's supposed to you know represent or or supposed to provide support for tune in we'll see you next time They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.